Hey everybody, George here with another mailbag episode. Uh, We got some really great questions since the last one, and I'm really excited to get to it. I will say we definitely got enough questions to do at least one more, so if you don't hear your question this time, uh, we did get it. I promise we'll get to it next time for sure. Let's dive right in. So this question is from Jen right here in Philly, and she says, You've talked about good remakes versus unnecessary remakes on your show. What's a movie that you actually think deserves a remake but hasn't had one? And this is a really good question because as far as what I feel is unnecessary versus what I feel is good, a lot of it is kind of uh, individualistic in terms of uh, arbitrary determination. You know, it's like uh, what uh, Justice Stewart said, yeah, I, I know it when I see it about pornography. Well, I know it about uh, remakes. And I think that for me, a good signifier is a movie that hasn't had the best execution but has a good idea and a lot of times the movies that we get remakes of are good executions already and they say well it worked once so why won't it work again whereas i think that remakes are are much better served taking another bite at the apple and really trying to improve on the work that happened already now i think that an example of this would be nightbreed This is a movie that has a lot going for it. Uh, First of all, David Cronenberg is absolutely fantastic as the villain here in one of his few acting roles. And it also begets a lot of practical makeup effects. So this movie is not bad by a long shot. Um, I also like the story of it, even though it's a little hard to keep track of in this version because the editing is abysmal. (laughs) Um, But it's also bloated. And besides Cronenberg, the other performances don't really do anything for me. And, you know, I think that it is a timely story because uh, Clive Barker wrote it, and I think that it's pretty easy to read as sort of a metaphor for his homosexuality. So I think that, you know, this is a movie that could totally work uh, in 2021 or 2022, whenever this movie would hypothetically be coming out. I think we get the movie, get it going, keep it practical, keep it tight, you know, 90 minutes and then we're out. Maybe Alex Wolf is the new guy. Uh, I just saw him in Pig, and it was really great. And, uh, you know, he was in Hereditary, so we know he uh, can make do with horror. So, yeah, I think that Nightbreed would be a really good example of a movie that deserves a remake. I will say, I also don't think it needs a remake, but I hear The Crow getting tossed around a lot. I will say I think that a good casting for a remake of The Crow would be Lakeith Stanfield. I think that he has, like, the lankiness to it and uh, that he has that sort of wry humor. I I think that that would be a really good one. So if that does wind up manifesting, uh, I'm hopeful that we can get at least something something interesting and uh, hopefully as good as uh, Brandon Lee because he was really incredible. I love that movie. What's a movie you wish you could experience for the first time again? This was a question from Prince on Twitter. Maybe this is a weird pick for me, but I'm going to go with the Nathan For You documentary, Finding Francis. Now, even out of the context of the show, Nathan For You, it's a really incredible documentary. Like, if you just came to it blind, I think you could still get a lot out of it. But also, everyone should watch Nathan For You. It's absolutely fantastic. It's truly one of the funniest shows I've ever seen. You will not believe how far people will bend, but... Once you've seen the show, you'll have the context for this movie, which questions not only the authenticity of the movie, but of Nathan himself. And I find it to be just so incredibly compelling and self-reflexive that it really kind of changed my opinion on what movies could do. 
it was so self-aware in an intelligent way. It didn't reek of like a phony meta-ness or anything, but it did kind of split the line between real and fake in a way that I found just incredible. Another movie that did this kind of recently was, um, I think it's called, I'm just going to look it up. It's called Bloody Noses, Empty Pockets. And this is a movie that is filmed like a documentary, but you come to find out that they are actors, a lot of the people in it. And it's about these people on the day before a bar closes for the last time, like outside of Vegas. And like all of the staff and the locals and the regulars who uh, who attend this little, little seedy dive bar sort of saying their farewells to it and the party that they have and everything. And I watched it and I was like, wow, that was a really great documentary. And then I looked into it and read about how it was um, not really a documentary at all. It's, it's something sort of else. It's, it's not quite a documentary, but also not quite like a complete work of fiction. There's just such a, a, a weird middle ground that I find absolutely fascinating. And uh, Finding Francis really captured that for me the first time. Um, I also, it just kind of blew me away with its gentleness and understanding while still retaining the spirit of the show uh, and keeping you engaged with the search and the searchers. You know, it's it's a really great documentary that's well-rounded and then, you know, you can really kind of read into it as well when you look more into the, the surrounding of the movie. This next one was actually a question that wasn't specifically directed at me, but I did think it was interesting and I thought I thought it would be fun to talk about. Zubert on Discord asked, uh, how would you do Freddy in space if they came to you today and said, hey, we need a Freddy in space like Jason X, or at least what they wanted Jason X to be. Hopefully we can add. Look, I like Jason X, but it's goofy, to say the least. I think that the way to do Freddy in space is to kind of just rip off Event Horizon. Uh, I think that if you replace Satan with Freddy, go up there, uh, he's all. We, maybe we have like a cold open where he finishes torturing a space station to death, and then the rest of the movie is the people being sent up to discover what happened up there and to explore what happened to the last crew and why they went uh, out of commission. And then as they explore and learn about what happened, he starts to haunt them too. I think that Freddy, because he plays on fears, could really thrive in space. Um, you know, he's not really like alive or anything. So none of the, none of the like issues of living <laughs> in space would really apply to him. And, you know, there's, there's so many fears between something like technically going wrong, being sucked out into the cold of space, aliens, disease, you know, I think that they really, they could do a lot in there because it's such a confined area. And you're really stuck in there with your fears and your peers. Your fears and your peers. So, yeah, you know, just a short short little pitch, but I thought that was a fun question. Pantweaver, also on Discord, asked... This one was specifically directed at me, though. <laughs> they asked, what's the funniest horror movie that's not a horror comedy? Now, this was tough because where is the line between comedy and not? You know, if it has comedic elements, does that make it a comedy? And basically what I landed on is that surrealism that you laugh at because you're uncomfortable 
is funny, but not necessarily comedy. And for that reason, I landed on two great surrealist movies. I couldn't land on one, so sorry, Pant, but uh, that's that's you're getting two answers. The first movie is Deerskin, which is Quentin Dupieux's uh, movie starring Jean Dujardin from The Artist in the OSS movies, uh, which I like both of those, and Adele Hanel from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is also very good. She is the artist, by the way, in that movie. And this is the story of a guy who loves the deerskin jacket that he buys so much that he becomes obsessed with it and becoming the only jacket-wearing guy in the world, leading to his spiral. And it is kind of a comedic scenario, but it's it's handled very straight-laced. Nobody in the movie breaks it all in any way or indicates that this should be considered a comedy. But there is that absurdist humor to it. You know, uh, it, it it makes it very funny when he's going around, like, stealing jackets from people and spiraling out of control just because he, like, likes this jacket that he got with some fun fringe on the sleeves. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's really great, and I definitely recommend that. The second movie, I think, fits into this category is actually Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me. Now, this movie is absolutely bleak as fuck. It's a true tale of horror. I I mean, goodness gracious, this movie is dark as all get out. But I also think that David is a very funny guy. You know, I wouldn't dream of calling this movie a comedy. But especially if you include the missing pieces, I think that there is some really funny stuff in the movie. Even just mentally comparing the law enforcement of Twin Peaks and Deer Meadow. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where it's, it's like, well... There are people who are definitely trying to be funny in these moments, but because the movie itself is such a dark and serious movie, I think that those little moments of levity don't make it a comedy, but still do shine through and are very important to to the movie and making it tolerable. (laughs) The next question was from Percocize, and he asks, uh, what movie do you put on the most? When I went to answer this question, I didn't want to include, like, tradition movies. Uh, You know, there are a couple movies that I watch regularly every year. Uh, Those include, like, uh, the Lord of the Rings challenge that I do with some of my friends where we watch the three extended editions back-to-back-to-back, and there is a drinking component to the competition as well. I watch Jaws every 4th of July. I watch The Crow, speaking of The Crow, uh, every Mischief Night, or Devil's Night, which is what they call it in The Crow. But I didn't want to go with one of those. I wanted to go with something that just naturally I find myself putting on more often than others. And, you know, there's a few that, you know, make the rounds pretty regularly. Two that won't be a surprise to anybody are are Psycho and Paddington 2. But one answer that might be a shock uh, is Footloose, which I, I love Footloose. I think that that movie is so fun. I watched it a lot growing up. It was it played a lot. My dad likes that movie a lot as well. And I think that Kevin Bacon is just so charming. And there's a lot of little moments in it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand that. It's a very, very silly movie. Uh, you know, the the rage dance and everything. All the parodies of it and everything, I think, are fantastic as well. You know, Hot Rod, when he does the rage dance and then falls down the mountain. I'm not sure that comedy has ever gotten past that, you know. <laughs> but I still, there is a certain earnestness to Footloose that I really enjoy and the idea of it being so simple as just like the puritanical reactionism 
to to the death of a loved one uh, versus the freedom of expression that is dance. And um, yeah, I think that the acting is all great. I think Sarah Jessica Parker is really, really good in that movie. And I think that the guy who plays uh, Willard Hewitt, Chris Penn, is just so funny in it. The scene where he's learning how to dance is so fun. I mean, there's like 20 montages in that movie, and I love an 80s montage. I just think that Footloose has a lot going for it. It's very charming. And so it's it's a good, easy watch. You know, you throw it on in the back, you get a, a nice, tight moral, some good, some good, really good tunes. I love the soundtrack to it as well. Uh, it's just a nice time. So that movie definitely gets thrown on a lot. The other choice that I almost said for this one was Rocky Four. I mean, speaking of 80s montages, you know, good lord. I, I think that that movie is uh, just a delight as well between the robot, which actually uh, sometimes you can see it depending on how I'm sitting. When I'm recording, if you watch the video episodes, there's the little uh, the little robot that goes, Happy Birthday, Polly. <laughs> it's behind me on my wall. And, you know, the speech at the end is so fun. He ends the Cold War with his fists. What's not to love? You know, if I can change and you can change, then everybody can change. So ain't that the truth? Uh, we got a question from Pat in D.C. who asks, what is the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia? Wow, great question. We're getting to the really important ones here, folks. To me, it's got to be Joe's. I mean, first of all, if you go to the tourist traps, you're dead to me. But if you choose Gino's, you're double dead to me because Gino himself is a documented racist asshole. I will say I respect D'Alessandro's and Jim's. I think that they're both solid choices. But for me... The best steak in Philly is Joe's, and there's a couple factors here. First off, location. Uh, This is technically the second location because Joe's itself is originally from outside Philly, although it used to have a hella racist name, and the new location has a normal name, and it's right on Girard in Fishtown, uh, right around a bunch of great bars and the Market Frankfurt line stop, so you you hop right off the L, super easy to get to. Uh, It's it's a really nice environment to, uh, you know, grab a steak, and then hit the bars. Second, though, the steak itself is rad. You know, the regular one is really good, but also I happen to be a really big fan of the buffalo chicken cheesesteak, and they do a really nice chopped chicken for that instead of the shredded chicken. It helps it to make it feel a little more like you know what you're getting, you know? The quality of the meat feels higher. Finally, their additionals are really good because, you know, a cheesesteak is pretty dense and heavy, so it's not the kind of thing you tack on every single time, but they make pretty solid fries, and their milkshakes are rad as hell. I've had both a horchata milkshake and a cinnamon toast crunch milkshake that blew my dang mind from there. So Joe's scores high in multiple categories and walks away with the title. This one is from Sarah in Bucks County, and she said, what do you think are the Philly spots that people visiting the city should definitely hit? And I I mean, for me, Philly has some really incredible museums. Uh, The Barnes and the Rodin are two of my favorite art museums, period. There's some really amazing work at the Rodin in particular, which has the largest collection of his work outside of Paris. I actually also love the Penn Anthropology Museum. And of course, the Mutter Museum, or Mutter, if you're going to be fancy with it, (laughs) is very, uh, very cool for medical and pathological oddities. Uh, As far as venues, like if you want to go see a show, 
There's some cool bar venues down in Fishtown, right around Joe's, actually, like Johnny Brenda's and Kung Fu Necktie, which I was actually at with a former guest of the pod very recently. And I like Union Transfer and Philomoca, too. That stands for the Philadelphia Mausoleum of Contemporary Art. It's a very cool place, actually, in the Finney and Son building, which was a showroom for mausoleums that dated back to 1865. Diplo bought it. And now they host a bunch of fun, like, outsider art shows. And that's actually where I saw the Sloppy Boys and Don't Stop or Will Die show that I always talk about. But they also have, like, a David Lynch celebration, uh, the Cinadelphia Film Festival, uh, a bunch of other cool stuff. If you're here to see a movie, the Ritz Five is a great little indie theater that I like very much. It's down on 2nd Street in Old City, so you can definitely enjoy some nightlife before and or after. And they also hire real fans, which is nice to talk to, like, the people working there and not feel like they're just, you know, killing time. Like, the people who work there seem to really like movies and, and go see the movies there. And importantly, they also show great stuff. Like I said, I saw Pig recently, which was there. I I just loved it. I thought it was great. And they, I've seen many, many great movies there. A lot of indie stuff. And they take part in the Philadelphia Film Festival. And it's just a nice place. You know, the aesthetic is fun. It's very classic. It's not too pricey either. Get a fun drink at Bootleggers around there. It's just a nice time. So yeah, uh, hopefully if anyone comes to visit, they'll uh, check out some of those places. We also got, this one's going to be a little bit of a long one. So bear with me, folks. But we got an email from Sniggy who he asks, what is one lesser known movie from each decade from the 70s to the 2010s that you think every horror fan should watch? And he uh, listed his as well. And so I'll read those as we go. So from the 70s, his was Tourist Trap. And from 1971, I chose Mario Bava's Bay of Blood. Now, this is one that is only lesser known depending on who you ask. It does have a bit of a reputation as one of the transitory pieces between Giallo and slasher movies. It's very fun, if a bit hard to follow, uh, kind of like Nightbreed. But it's, it is a lot of fun. It's a great tone piece. It has an incredible influence on stuff like Friday the 13th. And honestly, slashers in general, they owe a huge debt to Mario Bava's Bay of Blood. From the 80s, Sniggy chose Street Trash for his movie, and I am choosing uh, 1988's Vampire's Kiss. Uh, This one also has a bit of a reputation, but in the other direction. It's got a Nick Cage performance that, removed from the context of the story, I can understand why it's memed. But when you actually watch it, it's a fantastic bit of acting. Uh, It's really representative of his acting method that he calls Western Kabuki. It makes total sense within the story, and it's just a great time. You know, I always bring it up when people say that Cage can't act, and they say stuff like, oh, well, I haven't watched Adaptation or Raising Arizona or Vampire's Kiss or Leaving Las Vegas or whatever, and it's just incredibly frustrating to see really a really talented actor maligned like that because, I mean, sure, he's done plenty of crap, but to say that Nick Cage can't act is just not true. I mean, again, you know, go see Pig playing right now. It's really great. This small, small movie. So, but yeah, it's Vampire's Kiss is really great. It's very fun, but it's also pretty sad. (laughs) For the 90s, Sniggy chose Body Bags, and I am choosing, uh, the 90s got a little tougher for me. Most of the underseen movies I like from the 90s are just like movies that I like because they're weird and incompetent, but trying their best, <laughs> like Winter Beast and Scary Tales. But ultimately, I landed on Frank and Hooker from 1990. It's a goofy Frank Henenlotter movie that I enjoy, and it kind of falls under the radar just because of Brain Damage and Basket Case being also great, and they're definitely the more well-known from his work. And uh, I think that it, it, it fits right in. I think that uh, it's, it's another hit from Henenlotter. 
from the 2000s, Sniggy chose The Loved Ones, which I'm not familiar with. I'll have to check that out. And I am choosing from 2009, the movie Low, that's spelled L-O. This is a movie that's adapted from a stage play, and it's really minimalist in the right ways, but also has some really elaborate costuming. It's really fun, kind of like a Faustian story about a guy who summons a demon to try and find his missing girlfriend. This is probably the true sweet spot between good and underseen by everybody, not just like mainstream audiences. I I genuinely don't know how my brother got a hold of this in 2009. Um, I don't know if he saw the show or what, but I loved it even then. I literally got a poster for this movie when I went to college and everyone was like, what the hell is this movie? And I was like, "It's, it's this great movie that to this day, I don't think I've ever just like encountered someone who knew the movie without me being the one to tell them about it. So hopefully more people will check it out because it's it's really worth it. I think it's a, a very sweet story. From the 2010s, uh, Sniggy has chosen Bone Tomahawk. Uh, Bone Tomahawk is a very uh, solid movie. I like that one a lot. There's There's some stuff going on behind the scenes on that one that make me a little reluctant to talk about it on the show, even though it has actually come up a few times as a possible option for people. But, man, it just... There, I just don't really want to talk about, like, Craig Zoller and all them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, watch it if you want, but I have a hard time endorsing that movie. I will say uh, that the 2010s were a really hard one for me as well, but for the opposite reason of the 90s, it's because there have just been so many, like, fun little indies that have these little followings, but have definitely should have more eyes on them. Movies like Dave Made a Maze, which is this fun, like, twee horror movie where they kind of blended up Wes Anderson and House of Leaves. The Greasy Strangler is great and funny and kind of John Watersy in that the cast of characters are grimy assholes and, and you genuinely don't even know how you wind up liking them at the end of the movie. Ghost Stories is a fun anthology film and I enjoyed even with my typical distaste for paranormality. Martin Freeman is in it uh, for for one of the the vignettes. And uh, yeah, it's it's fun. It's British, very British. It's, it's a good time. The Clovehitch Killer and The Black Coat's Daughter are uh, both reserved and intense horror movies that I also enjoyed a lot. Those have a little bit more of a following, so I didn't want to pick those. But if you haven't seen them, you definitely should. They both are usually streaming somewhere, so you should check out The Clovehitch Killer and The Black Coat's Daughter for sure. But ultimately, I settled on The House That Jack Built. This is from a little bit of a bigger name, Lars von Trier, and I think that people more often know the name than actually watch the movies because he famously makes difficult films. This also happens to be a two and a half hour movie, which is uh, very off-putting, you know, even for me. So I'm here to say that Matt Dillon is so fucking good in this movie, folks. You know, he's an amazing killer in it. it he, he's like a serial killer. Uh, and it's it's just really a, a fantastic movie. Plus, uh, Lars is exploring some interesting concepts about art as violence and creation as destruction, uh, explicitly going on to claim that you destroy art by imposing a moral ruler on it. And it's the kind of thing where whether you agree with it or not, it's at least worthy of consideration, I think. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that this movie won't be for everyone, but I, I thought it was great. And I think that uh, people will will get a lot out of it. Thanks for writing us, Nikki. That was a that was a fun question to explore. Our next question is from Dthulu, who asks, 
if you could take a one-off movie and turn it into a small franchise of three to five movies, what franchise would I pick to be the most successful? Very interesting question. And my answer, I think, is going to be Overlord, that movie from just a few years ago, 2018, where it was like Nazi zombies, basically, the movie. (laughs) And I mean... It's something very satisfying about watching Nazis bite it. I gotta tell you, pun intended posthumously, (laughs) in that I said the pun, did not intend it, but now I very much intend it. You know, I think that you could do a lot with this in terms of, you know, that one took place on the day before D-Day. But I think that we've seen that there is enough variety in the theaters of war of World War Two to keep it going. You know, you can get some frosty zombies in the the Russian front. You could get some some zombies in in the Pacific Ocean. You know, fighting sharks uh, in an homage to zombie. And uh, yeah, I I think that there. Well, first of all, I th- uh, I forget if Wyatt Russell lives or dies. I hope that he lived in that movie <laughs> because he's a great. That guy's a leading man waiting to happen. And I think that if he he could carry that franchise, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's 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 we've seen whether you think that it actually has the legs for three to five movies, I do think that it would at least be successful, if not creatively successful. Uh, I think it would make it money to uh, you know just keep going back to that well. So you know, depending on what your definition of success is, uh, there you go. Okay, I think that's going to do it for this mailbag episode. If you want to get in on the next one and ask a question, you can feel free to email me at bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com. You can reach out on Twitter through DMs or whatever. Like I've said, people reach out on Discord as well. There is a Best Little Horror House Discord that patrons are certainly welcome to take part in. Some really cool people over there and some huge movie fans as well. So a lot of great conversations happening over there. And yeah, that's pretty much it. You can look forward to Ravenous being the next episode with Sean Perry, a.k.a. Sean of the Bread. That'll be a fun next episode that I'm looking forward to, a Western cannibalism movie, pretty different from anything that we've done yet. Okay, bye everyone.